turn to James chapter 4. As you're turning there, let me just say to uh, Lois and Kathy, thank you for your ministry. Um, We appreciate a ministry that is humble and on mission and effective, reaching people that Matthew 25 calls the least of these, but it's people who are in desperate need of the gospel. And it's an example for us to dignify the image of God. There, People from all walks of life need to hear the gospel message. And guess what? The gospel is effective. It is the power of God unto salvation. And people are believing all over the world and in prisons. And so we are going to talk about, at the end of our service, how we're going to be praying for missions like Lois's and Kathy's mission um, to prisons. And thank you, Kathy, for the song you sang. It's a great lead-in talking about how God is our dwelling place. And James chapter 4 speaks of this. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 to get us started. This is uh, part 2 to ending the war. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, if you're a parent like me, this passage perhaps jumps out at you in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. Maybe you are someone who isn't a parent, but you love specific children. Perhaps you've adopted them in the spiritual family of God, and they are close and near and dear to your heart. And a passage like this that talks about God jealously yearning over his children takes on new significance, doesn't it? As a parent, I, I have been transformed in many ways. And I remember when Riley came along, and she's 12 now, so 12 years ago. I was in the hospital room, and Judy had sort of had some bronchitis that was getting a little bit worse, and it was kind of endangering Riley in the womb. And so there was a little bit of a, when do we take the baby, and, and how is this going to work out? And Riley's heart rate was going up, and so there was a little bit of uh, drama going on. And being a first-time dad and first time out the shoot, you know, I was sort of on the edge and using my preaching gift all around to the nursing staff. And, you know, things were not going really well. But the Lord was, what he was doing is he was changing me through that process. And it was like my DNA was changing where all of a sudden I had a heart for this girl when she showed up in a way that I realized I would go through a brick wall to keep her safe to make her happy, to try to set her up to be successful. I was going to do anything I could to help her. I had a jealousy over my daughter and over all of my children. And, you know, you wake up to how jealous you are for your daughter 
when all of a sudden you can't find her. You, you ever lose a kid? You ever, yeah, you, you ever sort of have that, that sort of wake-up moment where your system's shocked and you, you just don't know one of your ki- where one of your kids is? Well, it's happened to me. If it hasn't happened to you, it's because you haven't been a parent long enough because kids are part ninja, aren't they? I mean, they just can go away all of a sudden. And I was, the first time I had this happen to me was at the zoo. And I was in the, the petting zoo area and sort of, you know, with the sheep. They were sticking their heads over the fence. And we were all crowding around there. And all of a sudden I looked up and Riley's gone. And, you know, it's where you're, you're looking around and you're sort of thinking, where could she be? In these sort of flash moments where you're kind of looking around wondering where she is. You've experienced this, right? Some of you have. And she was, you know, sitting, minding her own business, you know, doing her thing behind one of those sort of stand-up cutouts of the farmer where you stick your face through. Well, she was just sitting behind that, minding her own business as we had a heart attack, you know, and everything worked out. But the reason I'm remembering these experiences is that it's happening again. And when I find Owen, like, he's our two-year-old in the suburban in our garage, you know, buckling up, and we're not going anywhere. We just can't find him all of a sudden. You know, you kind of freak out. My wife, she, she's been telling me lately that, you know, she'll find Carson in the corner somewhere snickering. He's our four-year-old twin. And it's not funny. But it shows us how much we love our kids and that sort of internal drive we have for them. Now, let me remind you of something that this passage reminds us of. God is a parent, and he is your parent. And if your vision of God does not include God as your parent, who is passionate for you in that way, then you don't have a clear enough picture of who your God is. God is holy. God is separate. God is sovereign. God is transcendent. He's above creation. But you know what? God is involved intimately in your life. He made you and then he recreated you as an adopted child whom he loves. There's a passion that the scripture speaks to where God has a jealousy for you. And this is one of those places where it's brought up. And it's good timing because there's a lot of bad news here about the Christian's sin In verses 1 through 4, there's a lot of bad news that James is unpacking about the world, the flesh, and the devil that's going on in the heart of a believer. And there needs to be a turning point. And the turning point comes at verse 5, where it opens up a picture of God that you have to embrace if you're going to change spiritually. You've got to know that God loves you intimately, passionately. And is pursuing you. That is who God is. What we're going to look at is steps towards ending the war. The warfare that we're talking about here is infighting that was going on in the church. That was, it was external public fighting that was going on. Where James says, look, wait, hold the phone. you got to take the battle that's going on between people and bring it internally and start with your own heart. If you're ever going to get resolution. If you're ever going to have a truce, if you're ever going to have a detente where the weapons are put down, if you're ever going to have reconciliation reconciliation with other people, you got to start first and foremost with the war that's going inside of you. And that's what James unpackages here. Uh, Last week I talked about redefining your enemies. And guess who public enemy number one is when there's war going on? 
It's you. It's you. You're the cause. Look, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then he isolates here. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Passions here is the word hedonon. It's, you, you have a passion for how the world wants you to live your life. You're thinking like the world. You're, you're a hedonist in a worldly sense. And you've got warfare inside of you. War here is the word for soldiers. You've got um, a battle going on. You're fortifying um, against each other in your own heart. And then he moves from the source of the conflicts within to the reasons for the conflict. And he lists a bunch of sins. And he begins in verse 2. The word desire, you desire and do not have so you murder. That word desire is lust. He says you're lusting and you, you have an unmet expectation that you think you deserve and you're not getting it from somebody. And so you murder them with words. Perhaps with actions, perhaps even murder to the ultimate degree, which becomes physical, where you try to take someone's life. You desire, you don't have, you don't get it, so you murder, you covet, you break the Tenth Commandment. It's what undid Paul in Romans 7. He was this Pharisee of Pharisees, and in Romans 7 it says that Paul said, I wouldn't have known what coveting was unless I saw the law. But, he, but James is bringing it up here and saying, you covet You want something so bad that you're going to fight and quarrel for it. Then he calls out passive atheism. This is what I called it last week. It's where you stop praying. Atheism is where you kind of don't believe in God. Well, there's a form of practical atheism that we can succumb to as Christians where we say, you know what? I give up. I'm going to act like God's not even there. And he says, look, because he says, verse 2, you do not have because you don't ask. In other words, you stop praying. It's like your spiritual air hose is being stepped on by your own wicked heart. You're all wound up fighting people and fighting yourself in your own internal battles where you stop praying and asking God for things. And then you become an active atheist, and that's where your heart gets so hard that you begin to treat God as if he's your cosmic genie in the sky. Asking God for superficial things. Asking God to feed your, your hedonism, to feed your heart where you're not seeking wisdom that's from above. Remember James chapter 3. But you're seeking the wisdom that comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Demon-like thinking. And he's saying, look, you're, you're asking for things. But you're, you're still not acting like you have a real relationship with God because you're asking for things where you're trying to dial up worldly solutions for yourself. He says, so you're not going to receive it because you're going to spend it on your own passions. That's the end of verse 3. Well, here's the second enemy. The second enemy is an enemy that you make God out to be. It's not that God is an enemy of a Christian, but... Verse 4 is where James is saying that you are at enmity with God. And because you have a friendship with the world, you're making God your enemy. You're wanting the world more than God, and so you're acting as if he's your enemy. There's hostility now between you and him in your relationship, and it's your fault. That's what James is saying. He begins with sort of a biting, stinging rebuke in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. This is the idea that as believers, as the bride of Christ, you are willing to deny and ignore 
Jesus' love towards you and go for the world to satisfy you instead of Jesus. You're stepping out on God in the relationship. You're, you're, you're committing adultery. It's like being the temple of God and bringing immorality inside of it. He's saying this is a defiling state that the church is in. Now we sort of finish with the bad news and go into verse 5 to get some good news. Get some good news. Look at verse 5. In contrast to this adulterous relationship, we have the second step for ending the war. We've redefined the enemies as ourselves and we're making God out to be an enemy. And now we're going to move into the second step. And the second step is verse 5 and verse 6, which is discovering God's grace. We discover God's grace. I should say rediscovering God's grace. As a believer, we found grace and we, we got into the body of Christ, right? By grace alone. Well, it's important as a believer not just to happen upon grace and get saved, but to fight sin by rediscovering God's grace over and over again. Grace is not a one-time transaction in your life. Grace happens and you are justified, but grace is happening as we grow in it through our sanctification or through our Christian growth. you got to rediscover grace, and that's why he's bringing up God's passionate love for us in contrast to the adultery that is being committed by the church. Now, i got to preface my exposition of verse 5 by saying this. Verse 5 is said by many commentators to be one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to translate. And I agree. I kind of went round and round um, with different views all week long. But the more that I worked this through in its original context, this is where I landed. Now, there are two ways to take this verse. There is um, one version that the NIV, if you have an NIV Bible, this is how it will read. And then there's another version that the New American Standard and the English Standard Version take. But in the NIV, it reads this way. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? In other words, what that translation is saying, and a lot of good translators and scholars and preachers take it this way, is they're saying that James is saying here that the whole Scripture is making the case of verses 1 through 4, and this is one more nail in the coffin to say, listen, Listen, you're lusting, you're having jealous, jealousy in your heart, prideful ambition, you're thinking like the world, and verse 5 is one more nail in the coffin to say, your spirit that God made in you, when he brought you to life, that spirit is envious and jealous for the world. It's one more nail in the coffin. That's one way to look at it. Now, if you look in the footnotes of your NIV Bible, there's a more literal translation, and that's the translation that I take. And that's the translation given to us here. It's where a translation where, in verse 5, James is saying, listen, by contrast to all that he's just said in verses 1 through 4, You're seeking the world, you're seeking the world, and you're living an adulterous Christian life by doing that. By contrast, God, who is the lover of your soul, is jealously pursuing you 
and wooing you back to grace. That's how I take this passage. And I think the context really defends it um, in this way. Let me just sort of um, build the case for this translation. God is the subject of verse 4. He's saying, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a friend of the world, you're making yourself an enemy of God. Now, he's the object of that verse, but that carries into verse 5 where God now is the subject of verse 5. And that's where verse 5 picks up with he jealously or yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And so God being the theme, carrying down from verse 4, going into verse 5 makes a lot of sense to me. You also lose a whole preposition if you take the NIV's translation. It's the word over. God is yearning jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. If you take the other translation, you have the spirit yearning jealously for the world, but you kind of lose the preposition. What is he jealously uh, yearning over? Well, verse 5 is simply saying this. God loves us. He loves our spirit, and he's yearning for us. It actually says in verse 5 that the scripture, as a theme of the Old Testament, documents God's love for us. It does. Exodus chapter 20 talks about God being jealous. And I think a lot of times as we think of the word jealously, jealousy, we think of it as a bad word because we apply it to ourselves and we say, when I'm jealous for anything, that's a bad word. And so we can't apply that to God. But let me tell you something. God is holy and God is the one being in all of the universe who is allowed to be jealous who is allowed to be absolutely pure in his jealousy. And it would actually do us wrong if he wasn't jealous for his own glory because he's jealous for his own glory because he's inviting his church to be jealous for God's own glory. You know why? Because God wants you to be satisfied. And when we substitute the world for God, you know what we're doing? We're saying, I'm going to be zealous or jealous for the world instead of something that can really satisfy us. Exodus chapter 20 talks about how we are called, verse 5, not to bow down to idols, for the Lord is a jealous God. In Exodus chapter 34, he says that his name is Jealous. God is rightfully jealous for his own glory, and he wants you as believers to have that same jealousy for him, not for the world. God's jealousy is right. And you know what? He's jealous, not just for his own glory. He's jealous for you. In verse 5 again, he says that he's jealous over the spirit he's made to dwell in us. Do you know what the word spirit there is? That is the essence of our life. It's what makes us human beings. In James chapter 2, if you turn back, he says in verse 26, the body apart from the spirit is dead. That's the only other place in the book of James that the word spirit is used. And he's talking about what makes us human. He says, look, you're just a lifeless corpse unless you have a living spirit inside of you. And that living spirit is the same spirit that Genesis 
talks about in the creation account in Genesis chapter 3, where it says that God breathed life into Adam. Do you remember that verse? He breathed life into Adam. That living essence of being human is what God loves. Now, some people will interpret the Spirit as the Holy Spirit, and I think that's a a, a stretch here. The Holy Spirit isn't mentioned in the book of James, but what I think James is talking about is the human spirit. Now, he could be talking about the fact that he has regenerated our inner man. He's brought us to life spiritually, but listen, regardless of how you take spirit, this is the point I don't want you to miss. God loves you. And he loved you enough to call you his child. He loved you enough to rescue you from your sin and adopt you into his family. He loves you. And he loves you enough that he pursues you. And when you're at your zenith of sin, when you're walking away from God, when you're lusting for the world, when you're, when you're all sideways with somebody and you can't reconcile that relationship and you're, you're dealing with your own sin, the thing that's going to melt your heart and bring you to repentance is one thing, and that is when you recognize that God loves your spirit. And that is a theme in Scripture. That is what James is saying. He's saying, listen, if you look at the theme in Scripture of God's love, it's directed specifically at you. He loves your spirit. He loves your spirit. He loves who he made you to be. There's a lot of things you probably go, you know, I wish I was different, or I wish I didn't have this, or have that, or this problem, or that. God superintended the kind of person that you were supposed to be. And he refashioned you with this Holy Spirit and gave you spiritual gifts to use. And he loves that about you. In Zephaniah, in the Old Testament, it shows God singing over his children. I love that picture. He sings over you. He loves you personally, intimately, passionately. And that's what I believe verse 5 is emphatically saying. Let me read to you how John Piper deals with this text. And he gives it strong, and it's going to be up on the screen so you can read along with me. He says, James has in his mind a picture of people who use prayer to try to get from God something they desire more than God. He calls these people men and women. He calls them adulteresses. Why? Because in his mind, God is like our husband who is jealous to be our highest delight. If we then try to make prayer a means of getting from him something we want more than we want him, watch this, here it is, we are like a wife who asks her husband for money to visit another lover. It goes on. As if it were not clear enough, James explains in James 4-5 why this is offensive to God. Quote, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. In other words, God is jealous to be the object of our spirit's greatest delight. He's jealous for that. And James 4.4 says, if we become friends with the world, we become enemies of God. That means if we find our most satisfying relationships with others besides God, we make him our enemy. Now here's some strong language. Buckle up. God is either our first and greatest delight or he is our enemy. 
I think Piper's saying it strongly. I think he's not as strong as James is, though. James is cutting it very, very clear. Douglas Moo, a commentator I use, said it this way. God will brook no rival. What rivals do you have that interrupt your relationship with God? I want you to examine yourself. This is pride. This is pride that we have to identify if we're going to get to grace. And I'll tell you, there's nothing that melts my heart more than reconciling again that I have a God who I call out to and I say, my Father who is in heaven, holy be your name. You are my Father. When I recognize again that God is my Heavenly Father and I am his adopted child and he's made me a new creature in Christ My heart just melts over the sins that I do against him. When you sin, you're not just violating a a code book, a book of rules. All other religions operate that way. All other cults, all other religions, false religions, are works-based, fear-based religions. They want to get you in draw you in because they say, look, all you got to do is follow these simple rules and you'll have all the fellowship and friendship and all your needs and everything figured out for you. But if, oh, but if you go outside of the code book, then you're outside of us and you need to fear that. That's cult speak. That's how a cult works. All of them do. But Christianity is real because Christianity is based on God and it's based on grace. Grace alone. And it's grace that motivates us. Just think about it in your own life, if you've parented or had the privilege to parent children. It's real easy to just try to parent them with rules. I have no problem with setting some standards and some rules, but I never want to do it outside of my relationship to the heart of my child. Right? You got to love your child intimately. Know them, who they are, what their temperament is, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, what their temptations are, how they're interpreting what you say. You got to think that through. And why would you think that through? Because you love them. You want the best for them. You're interested in them personally. It's easier to just say, listen, you broke the law, you stepped over, punishment's going to be enacted. My heart's just kind of stiffened towards you, and we're going to move on and see how you do the next time. That's the easier way to parent, and that's the quickest way to harden a child's heart. That's sowing seeds of corruption and you'll, or in the flesh, and you'll reap cor- corruption. Galatians 6, you want to sow seeds of the, in the Spirit to reap eternal life. That's how God works with us, though. He works by sowing seeds of love and grace in our life's lives so that we will choose him back. His greatest passion is for his own glory, and he wants, wants us to see that so we will enjoy his glory with him. He wants you to want him. And that's why we would forsake the world. That's how it works. 
This is the picture of Hosea. We looked at this last time. I just kind of want to open it up one more time to us. I think it's so applicable. I want to bring out a few verses here. Hosea is a minor prophet. That doesn't mean that it's like minor leagues in the Old Testament. It just means it's a shorter book of the Bible than Ezekiel or Daniel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. But actually, this is 14 chapters, so this is a big minor prophet. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Uh, Hosea is prophesying in the time of Israel when there was great prosperity. It was 722. They were living the good life. They were enjoying themselves and at ease so that they were tempted actually to go after false gods and syncretize idols with God. And so they had no relationship with God at that time. They were, they were living that adulterous life against the Lord. And the way that Hosea was to example God's love and grace to them was by Hosea taking for himself a wife who was living an adulterous or immoral life. Take for yourself a harlot. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. When the Lord spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, If the story just ended here, you know, some people have called this minor prophet the deathbed prophet because it's right before uh, the northern kingdom was swept into Assyrian captivity for a time. If it ended there sort of as a deathbed prophet statement, that would be a clear example of God's judgment and dislike for what Israel was doing. But the story doesn't end there. This is a story of God graciously loving an immoral people, passionately pursuing, so much so that it's like a husband going after a wife who continues to go after other lovers. That's what's going on here. Let me show you some uh, pictures of grace here. Look at Hosea 3, 1 through 5. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, And is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Cakes of raisins, though they're being prompted into immorality by these aphrodisiacs. Verse 2, so I brought, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lechet of barley. And said, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So, I, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. It's a picture of grace. There's promise that's found in chapter 3. Even though the prophecy talks about the Assyrian captivity, about how they're going to be punished for their wrongdoing, there's hope in these verses because there's a relationship. Look at Hosea 2.16. And in that day declares the Lord, this is talking about restoration, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal or Baal. You're not going to call me Baal. You're not going to pray to me through an idol anymore. You're going to know who I am again because I'm your husband. 
And guess what? That's how it is in Christ. No matter how far you're straying, God is one day going to restore that relationship in your life. And if you're straying from God, seeking the world, the flesh, and the devil, James 3.15, if you're living for your own selfish pride, then God could use this word to draw you back to him. I want to show you something. Look at Hosea 13. Look at Hosea 13.14. This is a direct reference to the resurrection. Now, it's talking about the restoration of the northern kingdom, but it's also... It's foreshadowing 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to this. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Does that sound familiar? Right? 1 Corinthians 15. That's a reference in the New Testament to our resurrection. And all of this is talking about the grace that came not only to the northern kingdom, but will also come to the church for restoration. Look at Hosea 14, 3 through 7. It's the promise to restore. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. Do you want this to be God's prayer for you? This is what melts my heart is recognizing that these promises are applied to us in the church. Verse five, I will be like the dew of Israel. Verse six, his shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive in the fragrance of Lebanon. Verse 7, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. I like that word dwell again. It's picking up on James 5, our text this morning. God loves us. He is longing and yearning for us, James 4, 5, over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. He loves us. You know, in the New Testament, the same themes are picked up on. I love Romans 8. Some of the earliest verses in my Christian life that I memorized was from Romans 8, verses 1 and following. You know, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, Christ did in us, setting us free from sin and death. Well, what Romans 8 is talking about specifically, is the difference between someone who is spiritually dead or spiritually alive. And the consequences of following after the law in the flesh means death. But he he picks up on the theme of how we are adopted into his family in verse 14. He says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And he says, When the Holy Spirit enjoins himself with our spirit, we have a spirit that cries, Abba, Father, or Daddy, Daddy, to our God. Before that, verse 7, look at this. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Very similar language like James is using where we have enmity with God or we're enemies of God. We're hostile to God. We can't please God, verse 8. But then if you look down in verses 12 and following, 
He says in verse 13 that if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But by the Spirit, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. You know what he's saying here? He's saying that because you've been adopted into God's family and the Holy Spirit has transformed your heart and life and you're crying out to God as your Heavenly Father, that's why you would fight sin. No other reason. If you're trying to keep the law in your own flesh, if you're trying to earn your way and earn your favor with God, guess what? You're going to be on a treadmill and you're going to get exhausted really quickly. If you're looking in the mirror every day and going, man, why do I keep loving the world in that way, and you try to fight that battle in your own strength, you're going to get exhausted. You're going to want to give up. You're going to stop praying. But if instead you say, you know what, no. This God, who was the God of Hosea, who was the God who was passionate about Gomer, who was passionate about Israel, who was passionate about the church, who adopted me, who transformed my heart so that I would cry, Abba, Father, to him. If this God is the true God in your life, then guess what? You're going to want to slay the flesh. You're going to want to combat your sin. And you're not going to do it in your own strength. You're going to cry out to God and say, God, help me because you love me. Help me because you give me grace. That is the second step to ending the war in your own heart. Remember the first step is redefining your enemies. You realize the problem is you. You realize you've made yourself an enemy of God. And the second step is rediscovering the grace of God. And that's rediscovering God's love for you. Well, this grace, it pursues you... And secondly, in verse 6, it overwhelms sin. It overwhelms sin. Let me just sort of picture what that looks like. First look at verse 6 of chapter 4. But he gives more grace. Stop right there. What that means is simply this. God is going to give you more grace... And overwhelm your pride. He's going to give you more grace than your pride. He's going to give you enough grace to melt your proud heart. All of what James is describing in James 3 with the tongue and how we love the world and then the fighting that's spawned from that, all of that is is one thing. It's pride. And what James is saying is, I'll give you more grace than the pride that's in your heart. I'll overwhelm it. It's a promise. It's like being on a beach. If you remember, if you got to a beach this summer, you'll sort of relate to this. It's being on a beach where you're standing there, and all of a sudden you've misjudged the waves, and the shore break's going to come and crash over you, and you try to run away from it. You ever been in that situation? I have. I've been in a situation where all of a sudden I'm sucked back and thrown flat on my back, and crashed onto with a shore break wave. And it's the idea that, you know, you're, you're kind of running from God, and you're, you're, you're stiffening in your own pride, and you're trying to figure out your own life and your own strength, and you're trying to run away, and the wave overtakes you and crashes down upon you and overwhelms you. I mean that in a good sense here, where God breaks our pride because he's giving more grace. The grace is pictured and portrayed as God's jealous love for you, where he's, as one poet said it, he said he's the hound of heaven. He's overtaking you and 
taking you back to himself. Verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, here's the promise, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What does that mean? There's sort of two promises here. One is negative, one's positive. If you're not going to call sin, sin, if you're not going to repent, then you're going to live with this hostile opposition with God. But if you're willing to identify the areas of pride in your life and repent of them and lay them down, then God will give grace to you. What does that look like? I was thinking of 1 Peter chapter 5 where Peter says to the church, Cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in the proper time. What does humility look like? Casting cares upon God. What does it look like? To receive grace, well, you start with your own heart and you say, you know what, I've been trying to figure out how to do this in my life. I've been trying to figure out how to pay the bills. I've been trying to figure out how to reconcile that relationship. I've been trying to figure out, you know, this tension in my life. I've been trying to figure out this habit that I need to stop doing, this sin that I keep putting in my pocket. I won't take it out and I I won't deal with it. Or you try to deal with it in your own strength. And what humility looks like is where you take those things and you lay them at God's feet. You cast them down because God cares for you. And you let them go. That's what humility looks like. And that's where God rushes in and restores you. And gives you this overwhelming grace. William Barclay helped me a lot this week. I like to read his commentaries. He says this about pride. He says, pride is what shuts grace off. It's pretty strong. If, if there's a, like a, a spigot, you know, where grace should be coming out, and pride shuts it off. It clamps it off from your life. And listen to this quote. A pride like this cannot receive help because it does not know that it needs help. And therefore, watch this, it cannot ask. What he says is, if you're so proud and so filled with yourself that you can't receive help, this is what it looks like. It looks like a pride that has blinded you where you don't even realize anymore that you need God's help. You're just sort of independent of God and going, I don't even know I need God's help anymore. And so it shuts grace off from me because I'm unwilling to ask for it. You've got to realize your need before you're going to go put yourself out there and ask. He defines it in this way. He says, pride does not know its own need. It cherishes its own independence and does not recognize its own sin. You know why you would flee accountability? You know why you might say, you know, I could get in that small group or I could go to that home group or I could go to that, but I'm not going to do it. There's one reason. It's our pride. God calls you to live in community with other people. And what it does when we live um, in a relationship with people where we're opening ourselves up to them, you know what that does? That means that person can ask you how you're doing spiritually. And if you don't want to be asked because of your pride, then you'll avoid situations where you'd be asked. It's as simple as that. But if you put yourself in a situation where people will ask you about how you're doing or, you know, this seems like pride in your life or how's it going and you begin to lay those things out before God and man, guess what happens? Grace will flood in. Grace will overwhelm you. 
and you'll be doing better. You'll be growing. You know, I need people in my life to remind me that God is not just a God that I study about every week. That, you know, that where you can go to your Bible, you do your time where you're, you're thinking about God, and then you sort of shelve your thinking about God for a while. Don't you need people in your life to remind you that God is alive and passionately in love with you? That's what melts our hearts. That's what opens us up to grace, to receive it. That's when we will begin to slay our sin. And grace here is guaranteed to the humble. Guaranteed. What a promise. This is where repentance begins. And we're going to talk about repentance next time. But let me start it with this quote. You're never closer to God than when you repent. And guess what? Repentance is a gift. And repentance is how we get to grace few words of application. Number one, I would just encourage you, use these take-home points. Maybe get with someone this week and discuss these with the scripture and just say, hey, let's talk about these points and see what we learned from the sermon. Number one, divided affections sever your awareness of God's affection for you. It's very deliberate words. Divided affections, when you're double-minded, an unstable man in all his ways, James 1. He's also going to pick up on that again in verse 8 of chapter 4. Being double-minded, that divides you and it severs your awareness of God's love for you. If you're looking at the world to fill you up, you forget about the fact that God is trying to fill you up with his love. Number two, a Bible-based vision of God is God who is jealous for his own glory... And God who is jealous for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's purest aim is for him to be jealous for his own glory? And that he wants you to be jealous for his own glory so that he in turn can satisfy you with the highest means for satisfaction, which is himself. But to be satisfied in God, you've got to grasp that he is jealous for you. Number three. When you can convince yourself that you are beyond the reach of God's grace, then you have lost the true meaning of grace. Let me define grace for you. Grace is not something you can earn. It's not something that happens to you because you're a good person. You don't merit it through religious works. Grace is the free gift of God that is ill-deserved. We do not deserve the grace of God. We cannot earn it, and God gives it to us freely. He lavishes it upon us. And the Christian gospel that I preach and live for is based on grace that comes through humility. Guess where it started? The humility of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, dying on the cross to save you for your sins, from your sins. He was the sacrificial, sufficient, perfect payment for your sins. He died and he rose again. All of that was humility. And all of that is grace. And guess what? That same humility that Jesus exampled for you is how you have to live as you receive grace as you grow in the Christian life. If you think you're beyond the reach of God's grace, then you don't understand grace Our sin makes grace look good. Now, I'm not saying that we should sin more. Romans talks about that. 
Paul says, should we sin more that grace would abound? May it never be. Don't think that way. But I'll tell you what, if you look at your life in retrospect and say, man, I did so many things. Or look at what I'm doing right now. I am outside of the pale of God's grace. Guess what? You're forgetting the point of grace. Grace is like the black felt that's laid over the table where you lay this sparkling diamond that's called grace and it looks ever brilliant because of the dark sin that's behind it. Sin makes grace incredible, glorious, unforgettable, and undeniable. So you're never out of the reach of God's grace. You can't sin yourself Get to the point where you've sinned beyond the reach of God's grace. And realizing that is what melts our hearts in the first place and helps us stop sinning. Because we want grace more than our sin. Number four, what do you need to identify as pride? Let me add these words, in your life, so that so you can let it go, turn from it, and receive grace. I want you to bow your heads, and I want to talk to you for a second. Just bow your heads and sort of draw a circle around yourself and just meet with God for a moment. And think about a sin that God might bring up to you, something that you can identify as pride. And what I want you to do is take it to the Lord, cast it before him, and ask God to forgive you of that pride and work on you this week on that area and give you grace 